0: It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another week. If you missed last week's episode, it was with Tim Elliott, a senior reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald, and we talk about the 12 tribes a highly controlled religious group, which has communities worldwide and has been investigated for everything from child abuse, labor violations, and alleged murder. Also, don't forget registration closes soon for our DISC personality profiling workshop that is on in Armidale on April the 2nd from 1 till 4 p.m. There is a link in the show notes, and to find out more information, I will add it to our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us. So if you are not a member of our community, pause this pod now and jump into Facebook to join. Disc Personality Profiling is the world's number one behavioral assessment tool, taken by millions of people every year. It's a very simple yet powerful framework used to articulate common ways human beings respond, relate and behave to each other. We dive deep into what drives and motivates human behavior and you walk away with a step By step guide to communication. It can be applied in a workplace, at home, in your intimate relationships. If you've always wanted to do a personality test, this might be your chance. Since talking about it last week, I've had quite a few phone calls asking if I can travel to do a workshop for individual workplaces, especially as we're starting to get close to the end of the financial year. The answer is yes. Definitely, but we would need to work out a date very soon as my diary is filling up fast. Send me an email or DM and we can organize a time to catch up on Zoom. Today, we have a very special guest and soon-to-be mother, Sammy Kennedy Sims. This girl was born to ski. This incredible sport has taken her all across the globe on adventures throughout the World Cup circuit. Representing Australia as the number one ranked ski cross athlete in the Southern Hemisphere, she proudly wore the green and gold at three Olympic Games, placing eighth in Korea in 2018 and again in the 2022 Olympic Winter Games. What you may not know about Sammy is before her first Olympic Games, she suffered a stroke only nine months before she was meant to take the start line. When she first told me that, I had to double take and I asked her to repeat what she just said. Yep, she said what I thought. She had a stroke at 24 years of age and went on to complete three Olympic games. If that is not enough of a reason to set aside the next hour to listen, I don't know what is. We discussed this woman's unwavering drive and resilience. And when the hour is up, I realized I had not asked her once what the games were like, how she felt standing out there, what it was like to represent Australia. Sammy is one of the most down-to-earth authentic women I've spoken to and honestly it just felt like we were sitting down having a cup of tea. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hi Sammy, welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Hi Ali, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this chat today. We did get started chatting before I even pressed record and I was like, we better get onto the podcast. Otherwise, we will talk our way into the afternoon and forget to record. Semi, I love to start every podcast with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal that made you choose it? Well, for those that know me,
1: this probably won't come as much of a
0: surprise, but I
1: think I identify most closely with a cat and- the reason why is I am fiercely independent, however want your companionship on my terms, and I'm competitive and however, want to have some sort of control in the story or or control the narrative perhaps. So, yeah, I mean, I say that I'm thinking about my cat that's asleep outside on my couch and, you know, the things that annoy me about her are some of the things that probably annoy my husband about myself. So, you know, I think, yeah, a cat is my animal. Yeah.
0: It's always interesting, isn't it, when you start to think about how you would describe yourself versus how other people would describe you. Do you think other people would say cat for you?
1: Yeah, I think so. Especially I've I've spent more time in the last 12 months with my husband than we have for the last 13 years of our marriage because I've just retired from sport and the similarities between a cat and myself are quite prominent, you know, like I'm I'm someone that loves to be stimulated. I love going outside, I love experiencing new things, but I'm also equally as happy to binge watch as much Grey's Anatomy that I think that I've got a medical degree. So, <laughs> you know, I'm definitely my cat and I get along really well. <laughs> and uh, for my husband who doesn't like to spend time on the couch, I think sometimes that can be a challenge balancing which Sammy he's got today yes
0: yes are we outdoors are we indoors are you lying Mm. are we active Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Sammy let's go back to the beginning like you've had an incredibly colorful career and we're going to talk a little bit about the career how did it all begin though take us right back to the beginning
1: so for me I'm the youngest of three and I'm about nine and ten years younger than my siblings so, by the time I came along, a family snow trip was part of my family's annual agenda. Fortunately, my grandfather had built a place down in Jindabyne in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains and we were able to utilize that and, you know, the family was able to come down and experience snow or experience mountains in summer. And I naturally just wanted to be like my sisters. So, obviously, by the time I came along, they were on skis and I was you know doing anything that I could to be hot on their tails and be that annoying little sister that just wants to trump her big sisters.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and because you were living in Sydney at the time, weren't you?
1: Yeah, we lived all over actually. Um, My father was working for a hospitality chain in Australia and we got moved around a lot throughout Australia, whether it was New South Wales, Victoria, ACT, even Northern Territory at one point. So, we we were quite a transient family, went to a lot of schools, had a lot of exposure to different communities, cultures and, and sport as well. But skiing was something that my dad did when he was little with his family, which obviously looked a lot different to how it looks now. You know, they would walk their gear in for a, for a week's stay in the mountains and battle the cold and things are much more luxurious and glamorous now. They can be. So, it was sort of that annual check-in regardless of where we were living that my dad had with his passion from when he was a kid. So it was pretty cool, you know, to grow up with that that exposure.
0: Yeah, and so how did you go from this young girl, hot on the heels with the sisters, to an Australian athlete? Like did you know, did you play lots of sports or did you, were you just like, I love this sport, I want to commit to it, and you would have had to move and... Yeah.
1: Again, chasing my foot on my sister's tail. So my, I come from quite an athletic family. Both my parents are quite sporty. My mum was a track and field runner during her high school days. My dad was a sailor and also a soccer player. And my sisters were exposed to all sorts of sports throughout their childhood. So when I came along, I kind of just, you know, if we went to Little Athletics on the weekend, then I was entered too or um, joined the local surf life-saving club in Manly when we were living in Sydney. For me, though, that one sport that was the consistent was skiing and I associated that with my family. So as I sort of aged up into my teenage years and I was doing all sorts of representative sport, whether it was track and field, surf, life saving, touch football and skiing, I I had to make a choice, you know, as I got to sort of that 14, 15 year old mark and I saw a great opportunity to explore and travel the world and I love the freedom of skiing. So it was always the one that trumped the
0: others. And do you think, when you think back through the career, are there moments for you that, you know, are just going to be edged in your memory forever?
1: I think so. I mean, it's funny, like I make it sound like I've always just frothed on going skiing. You know, there was a point in time we were living in Melbourne and we were skiing at Mount Buller, which is only, you know, three hours from Melbourne. So it's reasonably close. And I would just be so devastated to be getting in the car to go to Mount Buller on the weekend. I'd be like, "Oh, mom and dad, I don't want to go. I want to stay at home with my friends on the weekend from school." And then we'd get up there, and I'd have the same tantrum going back to Melbourne <laughs> to go back to school. And I'd be like, "I don't want to leave my friends in the mountains. I want to stay here forever. Why can't we live here?" You know, and and you know, I I won't say that it was easy <laughs> for my parents, but certainly, like, I don't want to romanticize the thing that it was just that it was always like skiing that trumped everything. I did have a little bit of FOMO on the outside and I think that's kind of important for me to reflect on, especially as I have retired recently from being a full-time athlete, that sometimes you don't want to do the activity that you're really passionate about and that's totally okay. Um, It doesn't mean that you're like cheating on it or anything and, you know, it'll be interesting for for my husband and I, we're about to welcome our first baby. So introducing snow to our child you know we keep joking that we're going to have some academic that doesn't want to do any sport and we'll be like put down that book get on your bike <laughs> you know so it'll be a big learning curve for us and I'm and it's only recently that I'm just starting to reflect on all of these things that that I feel like helped shape the decisions that I made as a teenager that led me to being, you know, 33 and at my third Olympics. Not yes. That long ago.
0: Yeah. And it is, it's when you start to go back and think about it. And when you're being asked to speak all the time, I think it starts to consolidate it, doesn't it? Because you start to think, well, what did I take away from that experience? And what were the hard parts and what were the parts that like, I loved about it? I was thinking when, when I was thinking what to ask you, one of the questions was were there moments in your career that you wanted to quit and why didn't you?
1: Oh, my God. If you ask any professional athlete, if they say that they, they never think about quitting their line.
0: Mm.
1: You know, like it's, it's hard. I quit skiing probably three times as a teenager once really seriously, and a couple of other times where I was just like, I don't want to do it anymore. It's getting hard. Or one year I did delay going overseas for the international competition season because you know the northern hemisphere is where all of the competitions are based in my sport, and I I didn't last very long because I had to keep going to school and I didn't have sport to get as a reason to get out of school and I was working at the local bakery to save up for you know, a concert ticket and I was like, this is not the life that I envisioned for myself and I have this great opportunity and I remember consciously making the decision that I wanted to pursue this as far as I could, this sport, and it was when I thought that I'd given it away. So I think having breaks away from sport or from probably not so much sport in general but just the the pressures that young people put on themselves with sport isn't a bad thing as long as they're in an environment to explore both sides of the coin. You know, I was lucky that there was no one pushing me to to stay or pushing me to go. So I was able to kind of have a taste of the normal real world and realize that I didn't enjoy being normal. I wanted to be extraordinary Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be something special and that was sort of the draw card for me. And that's like a pretty big deal at 15 or 16.
0: It's massive. And I was thinking as you are saying that how important that message is for mums and dads, you know. You're about to step into that world and, you know, you can really struggle as a parent when you see a child that has talent in an area and they want to stop. And it's like, do you encourage them and support them to continue or do you give them the space and time? And there's probably not a right answer to that, but hearing your story for you, it was right to stop and to get a taster of the other side. Well, it's interesting, you know, like I I wouldn't say that I had a challenging relationship with my
1: parents at that time, but I was always very aware of the cost and not just financial, but the, the overall cost of being engaged in a sport that's, you know, on a, Emerging to developing to elite level, you know they they were really good in. Now I see it as a thirty year old. Probably at the time I didn't agree, but you know they included me in the planning process so much that you know I did have the ownership, which made me go. I don't think I want to do this anymore. The cost is too high. Like you know, am I willing to give up all of the potential things? And that was really really hard. At the same time, though, and some of my coaches would probably agree with me here. For me. Sometimes I need a, a stiff kick up the ass as well to get moving and there's nothing wrong with that especially when like like tough love is is something you know now I think the focus a lot on athletes and adolescents in general is you know we've got to nurture them and we've got to make them feel supported and everyone needs to feel seen and heard and the reality is though would I have actually achieved what I've achieved without having a few people that were willing to ask me the hard questions mm. and pro- probably not because as a teenager, you're dealing with puberty, you're dealing with school, you're dealing with the social pressures, you also want to be you know, a member of your family, you've got all these hats that you wear. Sometimes if you're given an easy way out, there's no one there to challenge you to stop you from taking it. And And I'm really grateful now that I had people that were willing to push me a bit. I'm sure that there are ways that it could have been done differently.
0: But you may not have got the same outcome. You won't ever really know, but it, it is one of those things and I think particularly, and you could speak to this better than me, in elite sport there are moments when you're out there that you need to be able to push through even when you don't want to. There are moments yes. that we just spoke about when you want to quit but you can't or it's going to be giving up all that. And so to get that you have to have those foundational building blocks along the way and sometimes you need other people to help you see that in that moment.
1: And you need exposure, and kids in particular need exposure to situations that show them that they are capable of achieving more than they think they are. You know, even just at the moment I'm working on a project with some young winter sport athletes who are coming to a camp in the Snow Mountains in Jindabyne and they have no idea what they're going to be doing because they're keeping it a secret and it's going to be really challenging for them mentally and the tasks will get complex and they will get fatigued And they will see how much more they were able to give than they thought they were able to on that first day. And unless you, you know, you give people the experience to challenge themselves or be challenged, you know, you're living in comfort zone land. And I tried to get out of my comfort zone a lot and I never became an Olympic or world champion, but I bet you that any Olympic or world champion won't say that it's easy. And I bet you, they tell you that they're comfort zone is challenged and pushed every day. Yes,
0: absolutely. What would you say was one of the biggest learning curves for you along the way? I mean, I'm pretty stubborn. (laughs) And uh,
1: when I set my mind to something, it's kind of hard to change my mind probably is the best way to describe it. So there were various situations across my career, particularly in the last sort of 12 years as I, I say, the last twelve. I was years, like twelve bulk, years. I was
0: expecting you to say six months. In the last six, no, the last the, 12, 12, twelve years.
1: <laughs> so, and, and that being when I was in the elite high performance space, where people would say to me, "You can't, you won't, or I'll make sure that you don't," in various situations, particularly people in leadership roles and within our our sport, that made me go actually I can and I will, Mm. watch me. And that for me, you know, again, like talking about what we are talking about earlier about having people that were willing to sort of give you a boot up the backside when you needed it and a little bit of edge, I was able to prolong my career for a lot longer because I was tenacious and I was driven and I was willing to leave no stone unturned. I was grateful for the opportunities that I had, but if I was given $7, I made sure it lasted me you know, 14 bucks worth, mm. you know, and and I was very clever in how I approach situations to ensure that it was done on my terms. And whilst you get guidance from people and coaches and trainers and things about how you apply yourself or how you get the best adaptation to a training scenario or the best technical advice on snow, when someone tells you that, like, you know, I had someone tell me, You're the person that had a stroke. You're only ever going to be the girl that had a stroke and went to the Olympics. I was like, just watch me. Mm. You know, I will change this narrative and I believe that I did.
0: And, of course, I'm going to ask you about the stroke today and bring you straight back into that narrative. But that is like it's funny when I hear people talk and tell their stories so often you they have this moment where someone said something and they can remember the exact line and that is what kept them driving and kept them going. So I think, you know, it's it's interesting listening to you say that because you decided oh, you weren't going to be that person and that you were going to prove them wrong mm-hmm. and that you were going to go and do it for you. Well, I also, I didn't want to
1: give them the power. Like there are some situations, you know, like that are objective, like selection criteria, for example, for for qualifying for an Olympic Games or something like that it's pretty black and white. Like there's a set criteria that you have to meet, you know, and there's, there's hurdles and boxes that need to be ticked and jumped. But when someone tries to take your power away or, for me, my power away from the situation and say that they were going to influence the situation, let me tell you, that person's probably kicking themselves on the back going, oh, look, I made this change in this person. That, what was said to me that day was totally unnecessary. It didn't change my results that year, my outcome of my results that year, but it helped me refocus and reconfigure who was in my corner to get me where I wanted to go.
0: Yeah, and sounds like it helped you zone in on what you really wanted. It made yeah. you question, well, is this for me and am I going to step up to the plate now that someone's told me I'm, I'm not going to do it?
1: Yeah. Mm. Well, it also was just like how like arrogant do you think you are to think that you have any control over me? Yeah. Like that's not, that's not fair. That's not on. So I was, like I said, I was determined to take full ownership of my situation and my support staff and coaches and things will attest to this that since that moment, I have not left any stone unturned. And, you know, if, if another discipline within winter sports had a training opportunity, I was the first person to see if I could join in because we didn't have anything, you know, in my sport at that time. So, you know, it gave me the confidence to be like, hang on a second, you guys are worried about outcomes and you're worried about protecting whatever your ego is, Mr. Person, who said that. But for me, I'm actually not even going to pay attention to you anymore and I'm actually just going to focus on what it is that I want to achieve.
0: Mm. And let's talk about that day. Let's talk about what happened when you had your stroke. Do you want to just set the scene a little bit around what was happening for you in your career at that time and then take us through what happened on that day?
1: Yeah, so it was in April 2013, so it was nine months before what would be my debut Olympic Games in Sochi in Russia and I'd had a couple of niggling injuries across the season given the impact of my sport and the length of the season, you know, the season for us in, in skiing, I'm typically was overseas from September through to the end of April, maybe get home for Christmas if I was lucky or if I had enough money. And I had torn my meniscus in my knee and with the proximity to the Olympic games decided that I would have that damaged part of cartilage removed because I didn't have time to adequately repair a, a rehab, a repair. And that's a day surgery. It's I walked out without crutches, like like in and out. Like, you know, it's so, it was at the time so routine. And three days later, I was in bed and my lovely cat, Suchi, she jumped on my knee and I had a knee jerk reflex to her jumping right on my surgical wound and bent my knee that hadn't really gone, you know, anything from elevated to straight at that point into full knee flexion and kicked her off the bed and was in so much pain. And I felt terrible because she is my child, my fur baby. And, uh, I got up and picked her up and fell on top of her on the bed. And my husband thought that I was just joking around, like it was six o'clock in the morning kind of thing. And he realized that the cat was stuck under me and that I was making all these gurgling noises. And I was trying to roll myself over but I couldn't move so he rolled me over and turned on the bedside light and saw that I had a full facial droop and that something wasn't right Mm.
0: so it would have been so scary for him in that moment like it's that we often talk about this it's that moment that you know something is seriously wrong but you don't necessarily know what it is. What happened next? So fortunately for me, at the time we were living in
1: Canberra, I we'd just moved to Canberra, you know, in like six months beforehand so that I could train out of the AIS when I was at home and Ben was looking for workers. He'd just retired from being a full-time athlete himself. And I was seven minutes away from a hospital. Actually, no, I, was, I think it was close that. I think we were about three minutes from a hospital because the hospital's right next to the AIS. And Ben called triple zero after recognizing the signs of stroke and said, I think my wife's having a stroke. I need an ambulance. And they said, okay, how old's your wife? And he said, 24. And they went, what? Luckily it was so early in the morning, within seven minutes of him making that phone call, I was in hospital receiving a drug to dissolve a clot that had made its way from my leg, bypassing my lungs through my heart into my brain. And Turns out I had this small hole in my heart that almost everyone's born with and they close up by the time you're seven, but mine never joined the the septum in my heart, just overlapped. So I had enough of a adrenaline burst with the pain (laughs) to just have a little separation in my heart valves and my heart wall for a clot to go to my brain instead of my lungs. So that was sort of how that resulted for Ben, you know, it was terrifying, especially for him going from thinking that I was joking to, oh my God, she's not joking. (laughs) But him knowing without ever, ever even being spoken to about it, knowing that there was the sign of a stroke, you know, he knew that my speech was altered, that that I couldn't move on one side, so I was paralysed, that my face was severely affected, you know, and he made that that phone call and, and you know, I owe a lot to him
0: for that. And when you woke up in the hospital, were you aware of your surroundings? Did you know what had happened or, like, what what, what did it look like and what it, what was going on for you after you woke up?
1: I was alert and aware the whole time. So whilst this episode was happening at home, I was going in my brain, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm having a stroke. There's a blood clot in my brain. There's a blood clot in my brain. And when the ambulance came, you know, with their assistance, I walked to the ambulance and I then was – we were treated so well in the emergency department because it's an emergency, right? So, you know, everything happened really quickly. I got CT scans in my brain which showed that there was some damage to the front part of my brain and that there was a clot there. Hence, I was given the, the drug to dissolve that clot. But what happened next was the worst, was they went, okay, well, you've had this episode, you've had this stroke, we're going to admit you now, so you're no longer in emergency, you're stable enough to stay the night, and everything slowed right down. And for me, being the egotistical young athlete that I was, I couldn't handle the lack of urgency in finding out what happened, the why, the how, the what's next. And I was treated pretty poorly once I was admitted into the hospital as a patient. And that was because I'm used to, you know, I've done my knee, I need to go and get an MRI, you go that afternoon to get an MRI. And I could not understand why getting an MRI was getting delayed and delayed and delayed that first day in hospital when I'd when i been admitted when I could call someone at the
0: AIS and go get an MRI that afternoon, which sounds really, really, really spoiled. Like when you're saying that, it makes sense. Like you're like, if I had a knee injury right now, I could get an MRI you're saying there's a clot in my brain and I just had a stroke. Get me in it. Why am I not? I <laughs> completely understand, right?
1: Well, and also my experience with stroke in particular, but also in, with injuries in general, but with stroke, my experience was that's what my grandfather had. He was an older person. It's usually, you know, relative to some kind of disease or, or a lifestyle issue, not a person who's supposed to be going to their first Olympics in nine months. And then on the other side, my only experience with this sort of stuff was a uh, traumatic injuries like knees, like elbows, like hands. Where you know, if I need to go get a consult from a surgeon, I can tell you five people to call right now. So it's, it was just a very different experience for me. And 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 then getting told, not only you know, oh yeah, we've bumped you back because you're not that important. By the way, like you know, so like forget going to the Olympics. Like you're probably never going to be able to drive a car again. Like you know strokes really bad you say that you're an elite athlete like you must have been taking illicit drugs and i was like what on earth i was like get asada in here who now it's sport integrity australia and i was like get them in here test me like whatever you want that's not the reason i've just had this knee surgery i was on the pill i've flown 48 international flights in the last six months like this is my lifestyle and i could not comprehend the fact that they were like oh yeah well that's over and you know when I looked up information about stroke on the internet it was all old people and it was palliative care and it was it didn't fit me so what I did was you know as a proactive approach this wasn't right away this was a little while later when I was still in hospital it was probably about seven to ten days after my stroke I emailed the National Stroke Foundation and I said hey my name's Sammy I Have just had this episode. I'm in hospital in Canberra, and none of your information on your website is relevant to me. And I, without knowing it, formed this beautiful relationship with the National Stroke Foundation, which has been amazing. But it was interesting to then be introduced to a community of young people and young being post 40, you know, 40 or earlier, who have also had experiences with stroke. So it sort of opened me up to a network of people, which was great. But in that immediate time, getting told, like, oh, you're not going to the Olympics when you're supposed to be going in nine months. Again, much like the situation where someone told me, "You won't, you will never, I fought really hard and got my own expert opinions from outside of the hospital public hospital system, and you know started to plan my comeback.
0: So many things in that. When you say you fought really hard, that's for you innate in you I can hear that you know that's a part of who you are like you're not going to give up if there's something there and it's like this they're saying no I'm gonna find a way can you tell us what's involved in that I fought really hard like what were the things that you did how did you what was your mindset in that space like it sounds like when I'm listening to you, you did a degree in it you know you're like right this is where I am <laughs> I'm going to find out all the information find out who's the best I'm going to speak to the foundation you know and sometimes that's what you need to do so when you say you fought really hard what did that look like?
1: Well, ultimately that first looked like, you know, understanding a little more about my situation and bearing in mind that my situation was that within seven minutes I was in receiving a drug to to dissolve the clot that had caused my stroke. So I was feeling like scrambled eggs in my brain but physically was coming back. So I wasn't somebody who had long-term effects of a stroke because how quickly the my husband and the ambulance and the emergency team in Canberra acted. You know, we know with stroke that time is everything. So that's probably the first thing is that, you know, by the end of 24 hours, I was able to get up. I could go to the bathroom on my own. I could I could move around. You know, I was had a little bit of a deficit physically, but mostly (laughs) was emotionally. I was a mess. And part of gaining control for me went like I'm a control freak. I happily will admit that is seeking as, as much information as I need to feel like I can make an informed choice without being over-riddled with information. Too much information scares me a little bit. Um, you know, finding out enough of what I needed to know. And then who to ask and how to manage the situation. And for me, that was obviously at first we alerted my family to let them know that something had happened. So my immediate family, my parents and my sisters. And then it was being very careful about who I saw was actually in my inner circle for me as an athlete, for, for Sammy the athlete and because my now my personal life had been taken care of as in looking after me as a person, you know, my husband and my family were there. But that next step was, okay, who's actually going to be in my corner and who's going to help me come up with a strategy here to make sure that I can, I mean, look, if worst-case scenario I can get out of this situation and live a healthy, normal life but ultimately who's going to help pave the way for me to get on the starting line in Sochi 2014. So over the years being an athlete, you become quite friendly with doctors because you go and get checked up all the time. And I called my preferred medical physician who is one of our institute physicians in Sydney, who'd also been talking with the AIS down the road, who at that point by this stage were, were also aware of my situation. And, She was the one who reached out to personal connections that she had within her network to find me a neurologist to see external to the public health system and to help formulate a plan of what just I needed to exist, you know, whether it was medication every day, whether it was that I needed, you know, and I did, I was medicated every day, I was medicated differently when I needed to travel you know, getting scans of my brain, scans of my heart to understand why a a clock could get there and, you know, to my brain in the first place. And then it was bringing in my physiotherapist and my strength trainer and saying, okay, this is what's happened. And the rapid fire thing that happened after that was as soon as I was out of hospital, I think it took Ben and I, I wasn't allowed to do anything for, especially because I just had knee surgery, remember? (laughs) (laughs) It was probably the best thing for my knee, actually, because I didn't do anything for three or four weeks. So it healed beautifully. But once I was given the all clear to begin a resume to exercise and understanding that whether it was required or not by a medical team, I wanted to be supervised to make sure that I was safe. Ben and I moved to Sydney. So we moved to Sydney about six or seven weeks later. And that put me in daily contact with my gym trainer and my physiotherapist to ensure that my rehabilitation for my body was spot on because there's no return to ski cross or snow or exercise or there's no protocol for a stroke. There's You can Google 100 protocols right now on the internet of how to return to your sport post an ACL reconstruction. Give or take six months you know, with a stroke, with a deadline of nine months, we had no idea, but we knew that I needed the time spent. So I was really fortunate to be able to put myself in that position and be where my, where my people were, you know, and be monitored. So that was sort of, I think the, the catalyst to this all being a success was again, having that, whether it was it's a very dramatic way to have it happen, but having the courage to reconsider who's in your trusted circle as a person, as an athlete, and who it is that you need to show up for you and that will help push you and pull you and, and get, you, get you going. You know, I didn't talk to my On Snow coach about that for a long time because it was kind of irrelevant. The, the evolution of getting On Snow would be that all these other things had gone really well.
0: Mm. So what I'm hearing is you got a strategy you know, you didn't just throw everything at it. You threw everything at it after you had some sort of strategy. And that may not be a strategy in that if I do ABC, I'm going to know the outcome. It was like, who do I need? What do we know? What don't we know? And how are we going to get to work on this? And that's a really important part for anyone listening that is going through something massive that is life-changing, like what you're talking about. Someone previously on a podcast talk about who's on your board. You know, and you got to reassess that. And that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's like you might have had seven people sitting around that circle three months ago, but your situation's changed. And so you just need to relook and say, who do I need here at this point in time for this next little part of the chapter? That's what it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And understanding too that, you know, sometimes too many cooks spoil the broth. You know, as an, as an example to relay it into, into a normal world scenario. At the moment, I live two hours or over two hours from Canberra. I'm unable to have a baby in in Cooma in our local hospital, which is 40 minutes from me. I'm being managed by an obstetrician in Canberra. I also be managed by my GP or general practitioner here in Jindabyne, but she's on holidays. But so now I just, I instead of travel to Canberra to go see my GP, uh, sorry, the obstetrician more regularly because adding in another doctor here would make another doctor in an already pretty intense situation. So it was actually an easier decision for me to go, you know what, it's a two-hour drive, but for peace of mind, I know that I'm in the best hands possible. So it's it's sort of being, again, like there are so many situations where you have to constantly revise who actually needs to be in the know here. It can be people that you want to tell for the sake of sharing and, and their friends and their support networks, but who's actually going to be influential to me Succeeding in this this area. The other thing, as well, is that as I said earlier, like I am quite a control freak, and I'm quite an anxious person. So for me, being really proactive is part of my coping mechanism. Like I said, I, I like to find the right amount of information to help me make as an informed decision about matters as possible. You know, I've got other people in my life that like to bury their head in the sand because they feel overwhelmed by the information, or they want to know every single detail. So I'm sort of sit somewhere in between that and um understanding yourself and, and when you're when you're facing any any challenge where you have to potentially, you know, change the direction of the boat from weight the way you've been steering it, it's a good opportunity to go, how do I feel about this? And what am I you know, I just had a blow up at mum and dad about this. Oh, that could be because I felt really uncomfortable about that or I don't know enough about it, or I don't feel included and and just making notes about that, you know, like how do I react to these situations? Because that'll help so much in how you then move on to the next one.
0: Yeah. What am I reacting to here? But also the other part of here is what are my strengths? Like what mm. do, what do I know about myself that can help get me through this? And then what am I lacking
1: and who can I bring in to do that for me instead of me trying to do everything myself? Yes.
0: And thinking, I cannot believe the time already. I just had a look and I was like, I'm not near finished with you, Sammy. So I was like, <laughs> I hope we can go a little bit longer because I was wondering about when you were in that first stage because we haven't got to the Olympics yet and the training, we're still in that rehab, but what was the hardest part for you in this moment? Like through all of this initial phase but from having the stroke through to back to some level of training, what for you was the hardest?
1: It's Probably two things. The first part was obviously that physical rehab. So for me I was paralysed on my left-hand side. And I needed to rebuild myself to be within a few percent of my right-hand side. So that's, you know, under strength, under lo- like, you know, in load in the gym, explosive power. Like there were all these sort of metrics that I was constantly, we were, we were assessing my progress on. And also because the nature of snow sports are that they're quite risky. So I wanted to make sure that I was not compromised in my body that would any way that would make me more susceptible to having another injury so I wanted to make sure that my hamstrings were as strong as possible so that because I'm really quad dominant so that I wasn't prone to having an ACL injury for example so I was quite we were quite meticulous in that process so that was that was really 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 challenging because you end up doing stuff that feels like nothing and something that two months ago was not a problem and now you know you feel like you can't walk on a straight tightrope, you know, when I, when I could have done single leg squats two months ago, three months ago. So it like, that was quite challenging. But I think the other thing was that, as I said earlier, I, my physical, my physicality had changed from my stroke, but we were rebuilding it. So I felt like, you know, you're doing something about it, but my, my brain went to mush and I was really like scrambled eggs. It's the best way to describe it. And initially, you know, for, probably for at least a year, year and a half post my stroke, as my brain was starting to to rebuild and lay down new neural pathways, sometimes those pathways would get crossed. So if I was having an argument with my husband and any married person will understand this, that's listening. My husband would get really angry at me for doing something because I'm a slob and he's really, really OCD. <laughs> and and, he, you know, we'd be having an argument and he would get upset and he would be furious and I would be laughing at him because I couldn't have the right reaction. Subsequently, if someone was really kind to me or if something really good was happening, I was in tears. So I was just having the incorrect, inappropriate response to a lot of social situations that normally hadn't been there. So as you can imagine for my husband, you know, if he wants to have a serious conversation about something and I'm laughing at him when he's trying to be angry, obviously that would be so infuriating. Thankfully, he
0: stayed with me. For him. But what, like, what happened for you in that moment when you realised? Like, were you aware of it at the time?
1: Yeah, I remember just when those instances would happen. Um, thankfully, I didn't get to trouble too often. <laughs> but I remember laughing and being like, this isn't the right response. Mm. And then almost going, oh, it's not the right response. And I can't stop. Like, you're the kid in assembly that can't stop laughing and has to leave that was just frustrating because it meant that I then became quite nervous that the messaging that I was giving out was maybe incorrect, you know, and that was I was I misleading to somebody when I was, you know, saying one thing but it was coming out another way or kind of just made me reevaluate and become really careful about how I communicated with people. But thankfully over time that has gone, you know, I'm coming up to 10 years this year, this April, so 10 years on, I still have my challenges. I'm still a highly anxious person. I see a therapist to help with that now and I even take medication to help with that, but it's taken a long time to get back to being a consistent me.
0: Mm. And and I can imagine there would have to be times that you need to be kind to yourself because you would have it would have been frustrating and it would have been easier just to throw in the towel.
1: Well, yeah, and, and also like my my expectations of myself and others are extremely high. So Having to go, I'm at my limit, and sitting with that, like especially when it came to training, and this this didn't go away. You know, it hasn't gone away at all. I mean, this was still an issue going into Beijing 2022. But you know, if it was, hey, you need a rest day, you actually need. You're at the point where if you continue to push through, we're going to get to fatigued, and you're going to miss out on a lot, and you're not going to have any adaptation to training, and it's all going to be for nothing. It was still really hard for me to have that rest day and stay on the couch because I felt guilty because I because the expectation in my mind was, well, it was programmed for me to be in the gym today and now I've changed it. Like, is it a reflection on me? You know, I had all of those, those thoughts and feelings all the time. Logically, I know that that's not correct. You know, these plans and, and training plans and, and ideas, are, and they have to be flexible because there's no such thing as the average human. But at the same time, emotionally, I couldn't handle the fact that I couldn't do it, you know, and, and I'm, that will probably
0: never go away. I'm always going to try and be a high achiever. It's a perfect example of your greatest strengths, your greatest weakness. That is what got you over the line. That is mm. what got you back up to being an international athlete. But it came at a cost at times in your rehab mm, and having absolutely. to readjust your own thinking around the situation and being okay with not being okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and that's it. You know, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable has been like something that I've been trying to do for the last 10 years
0: yep (laughs) and it's about to change again as you have a little baby yeah and it will continue and it will be a daily daily focus we will have another podcast in six weeks and we'll see how you're going (laughs) so did you during that time be focusing on the nine months and you were going to take that start line or were you focusing on getting back up to being an athlete or were you focusing on just being a human in the world like if you're honest with yourself? Honestly, if I, I'm 100% honest, it was nine
1: months before the next Olympics, but I was thinking about 2018. I was thinking about Korea, Pyongchang 2018. So for me, in doing that, it kind of took the pressure off if I missed the mark or if I wasn't quite up to it. But also it meant that I was determined because by this stage, you know, at this stage now, I'm, you know, it's the middle of the Australian winter. We're about to go overseas and someone's going to tell me that after this, I'm only ever going to be the girl that goes to the Olympics from having a stroke. That was already, I was like, no, I am deserving. I work hard. I'm technically great. I have a chance to be the best in the world at this and I will pursue that. That's not a nine month dream. Mm. And, you know, it's so funny to like to to, to reflect on this now going into 20, or actually post-2018, after the 2018 Olympics, I sat down with one of my coaches at the time we had dinner and I said to him, if I'm at the start line in Beijing 2022, i give you permission to punch me in the face.
0: Why? What What were you thinking at that time? <laughs> because at that stage I was like, okay, two Olympics, I've had like,
1: you know, I didn't, I didn't have the result outcome that I would have liked, you know, an ideal scenario in the first Olympics. I was eighth in the second Olympics and I was like, you know, like, Maybe it's time. Am I just like, you know, is this ever all I'm ever going to be? And and we sort of had this joke that if either of us were there, we could punch each other in the face. And um, I've only seen him once since Beijing and he
0: hasn't punched me yet, which is good. <laughs> But it's really <laughs> grounding to hear you say that they're your thoughts, you know. Like it doesn't change, does it, even as you become... An athlete, a professional athlete, the same thoughts that we can have when we're in Year Twelve, sitting there trying to do our HSC or fall in love for the first time, or you know, they—it's that inner chat that can happen in our head, and it can either pull you under or it can drive mm. you into the next space.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Like, and you know, what's funny, you know, was that when I said that to him, you know, that was probably three weeks after the Olympics, but the night, the night of my Olympic event in Pyeongchang I had all of the service staff because of my event was like the last event all of the service staff on the Australian team that were helping us were there and my family were there and a couple of friends so we went out for dinner because it was pre-COVID and you could do those sort of things (laughs) amazing back when Um, and there was like spectators at the Olympics then too it was amazing (laughs) but we went out for dinner and and I sat there looking at this room of people and I went geez, my mum for sure was hoping that I would do this, but I was like, geez, this could be, this would be a great opportunity to retire. Like, how good is this? I've got all my people here. And I stood up and I had a drink in my hand and I said, what's another four years? (laughs) And my mum inside was like, no. (laughs) I wish
0: people could see our faces right now. You and I both just like, no. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And instead I was like, you know, what's another four years? Because I, you know, I finished eight in that, that day and, and I could have, woulda, coulda, shoulda done more, you know, so I was motivated again by that experience of not quite meeting my goal to continue to apply myself. It was very different, you know, coming into Beijing 2020. I'm, you know, now another, we're eight years on from the first Olympics, you know, so it's you're eight years older. And it was a very different thing that when I actually did decide to
0: retire, my mum said, are you sure? Are you going to change your mind tomorrow?
1: But also because <laughs> she could see that technically and, and, and within the sport, like, you know, I was one of the best and, and I could continue to achieve more and maybe I would get that gold medal and Milan Cortina it would be pretty nice to go visit in a couple of years in 2026 for the winter Olympics, but it was a very different space to come to.
0: On a slightly different topic. I'm wondering how you learned to live with having a stroke and being an athlete and not letting the stroke define you.
1: Yeah, that was a tough one. I probably went in and out of times where I was happy to be that person and and just sometimes just wanted to be Sammy and not be the girl that had a stroke. It's funny, you know, I think there are, t- there are people in this world, and I don't want to say that I'm an opportunist, but there are people in this world that decide to go, you know what, like this has happened. I can either like ignore it and pretend it didn't happen or I can own it. And again, for me, so much about my journey as a sports person in particular but also just how I live my life is about controlling the narrative, you know, having having it come from me rather than from someone else about me or on my behalf. And when I, when I sort of started to engage with the National Stroke Foundation, I sort of had to then come to terms with the fact that I would be associated with this thing and I could choose to see that as a box that I was getting put into or I could choose to see it as an opportunity to meet people who may maybe I can help. Maybe I can influence. Maybe they can help me. Maybe there's a job here one day. Maybe it's all just part of, you know, the portfolio that is your life. So for me, I sort of decided to throw myself into any opportunities that fit within my training and go, yeah, I am the girl that had a stroke and I've been to three Olympics. And, you know, that's not going to be everybody's journey. But if, my journey can help you make a goal to walk around the block or to perhaps get the courage to ride your bike again post a traumatic brain injury or perhaps even to just get connected with a community to help you through it, then to me that is – time and energy well spent
0: when you say you want to control your narrative that's one of the like golden questions right that people are like but how do you do it because it doesn't come naturally for many and it's kind of like a muscle you work over time I think sometimes it's like it gets stronger the more you do it for you how do you control your narrative well I think the probably the most misleading thing about that statement
1: of me controlling my narrative or you controlling your narrative is that it's only you I'm a firm believer, as you would have heard through, you know, most of this podcast that it takes a village. So constantly reassessing the people in your life and and this, you know, I had to do this a few times at school, even, you know, when I was a teenager in particular of looking at the people around me and going, am I actually, am I proud to be standing and like, you know, and, and, you know, are these actual friends, are these people that, you know, are a reflection of me? And if I found myself uncomfortable, with that, you know, looking then a bit further and going, well, who is it that, you know, not because they're popular and not because they, they might be able to elevate me in some way, but who who are the people that I actually think, oh, they're a really nice person and their their values align with mine and what are my values, you know, and, and starting to be curious about what makes what makes me up as a person. Starting that as early as possible, it's never too late, but starting it as early as possible is probably the magic word because then when it comes to you deciding how you want to live your life, the opportunities that you take, the opportunities that you find, not that are presented to you, it kind of puts you in that proactive state of mind to me. You know, there are some people in this world who lady luck is on their side and things just sometimes you look at someone and the silver spoon just keeps keeps getting handed to them and opportunities seem to just land in their lap. And the reality is that, generally isn't what happened but the perceptions there so you start to go well hang on how can I put myself in a position where I could get lucky too and it could be that you know if you're somebody who really 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 likes connecting with people and you enjoy you know for for me it was enjoying time at school because of the social aspect well what could I do outside of school to make sure that that social tap was getting filled or cup was getting filled rather and, you know, how could I, how could I integrate myself into a new community or, or, you know, I just, I sort of found ways to kind of have many options. I was never someone that had a best friend and, you know, we did this and we, I had like, you know, that three groups of you know, that, that tight little click. I... S- Scattered my way around, you know. If the boys were playing footy, and there was a boy that I liked playing footy, I generally was trying to get tackled on the footy field, <laughs> all the way down to you know. If there was someone that was doing a like, you know, me being a powerful um, sprinting kind of athlete, but if there was someone that I thought was having a go at, at a fun run that looked like it could be something new to experience, I'd go and join in. And and I think I just was happy to happy to put myself out there and. One of the things that I I sort of am trying to challenge a lot of our young people, not just within winter sports but in general at the moment with with people in my community is not being afraid to have a go. You know, I had to restart over and over again as a child because I went to, to so many different schools. So that could have been a really traumatic experience where you're the new kid all the time. But also I saw it as an opportunity to be whoever I wanted to be. And if you kind of just change the way that you think about things instead of being a victim, but being the hero of your own story, you know, just challenging even just the way you talk to yourself in those matters can sometimes give you the chance to actually own the narrative and control the narrative.
0: And just to highlight when you said you had to restart over and over, I think, I think sometimes we don't actually acknowledge that, that it is okay to start over I mean, I, that's yeah. my background as well. As I had, that's a line I use. I had to restart from zero multiple times so I now have enough runs on the board to know that I can do it right I know that if I hit rock bottom again or something happens I can do it because I've done it so many times but that first time can feel really overwhelming and you kind of don't know how it's going to fall out but you know over time you can learn to trust the process you may not know the how but it's like if I if I apply myself here and if I keep my mindset in the right place and I get the right people around me like you said and I get a plan of action and I think about the strategy like what do I want to achieve and what are the options here and how am I going to Do it and let's get to work. And how am I gonna know when I'm successful? You know, it's possible. Anyone can start. It's one of those things too, right? Like
1: a lot of kids, especially talking to kids a lot at schools and within our winter sports clubs, within my new job, like you know, you ask the kids like, you know, so what would you like to do? Where would you like, where would you like this all to lead you? What you're doing now? And they all say, Oh, I want to go to the Olympics or I want to be an Olympic champion. And you go, Yeah, but like that's great, <laughs> but how? Tell me the story. Dare to dream. I have to challenge my husband to this all the time. I like, go, okay, but if you know, if money wasn't an issue, or if we could travel, or if we could do anything, what is it that you'd want to be doing? Okay, well, is it actually that unrealistic? And most of the time, it's not. Mm. But you, we have so much, so much uh, limiting self-belief that we place these rules on ourselves. Oh, well, I can't do that because she's faster than me at running. Okay, but you could also just work on your running and get faster at running, and then you'd be wouldn't be an issue you know so there's there's sort of something that I like to say particularly to to the school kids that I talk to is in life there are always going to be obstacles no matter which way you look at it whether it's academically whether it's in sport music art drama family whatever but you can choose to see these obstacles as roadblocks or as speed bumps and a speed bump you slow down you ease yourself over it and then you carry on a roadblock you might have to quit altogether. So if you go into a roadblock or even if you go into a speed bump really fast, it's going to be pretty rocky. But if you take the time to slow down and think about what you're doing, you can ease yourself over a situation. And, you know, there's no limit. There's no rules. There's nothing that says that, For you know, my sport, if you want to be a ski cross racer, there's nothing to say that if you haven't made it at 18, you you have to quit. But there's a perception that you do. And I was 33 years old at my third Olympics. Like, I didn't start being a high performance athlete in my sport until I was really 20 years old. So, like, how does this, a 16 year old goes, Oh, I don't think I want to do it anymore because, like,
0: you know, I'm not going to make it. And you're like, How do you know? <laughs> Such valuable words of wisdom in that. Every parent out there needs to get their teenage daughter and son on to listen to this podcast <laughs> because it's true. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't know that until we look back with wise eyes. I wish we could know that back then don't you don't you think? uh, absolutely like you know if I could go back and
1: tell my you know teenage self hey like stick with it it's going to work out like trust me it's going to work out even if the results never changed from what I've lived doing the last for the last 15 years you know you've got your whole life ahead of you and you've got a pretty small window to be able to put yourself in situations where you're skiing four abreast with other people from other nations and, you know, like jumping off things for 60 metres and like all of the crazy situations that I've put myself in as an athlete. And to think about the fact that 14 or 15-year-old me was worried because I would miss out on the party that weekend and then I wouldn't know what to talk to people about at school on Monday because I'd been skiing or playing soccer or doing whatever but that's so relevant in that moment isn't it but it's so funny because then when I was 16 I was also going overseas for four to six months of the year without my family and all my friends back here at home were plebs to familyville I've had this whole world of experience by the time I'd turned 18 that they were only just you know getting the length of the leash from mum and dad to actually go and experience and I was like hang on a sec like, trust me, kid, like, you know, you're gonna meet some fantastic people and you might not might not find all of your people right now at sixteen, but they're there, they're somewhere, you just have to be willing to to put yourself in a situation to find
0: them. And it almost I'm thinking of like the grass is greener where you water it, you know. And that's what I've heard throughout your story. It's like you can look over the other side of the fence and think, oh, it's over there, it's out of reach, they're doing it better. You know, look at the neighbors, look at the people on Instagram, whatever. But really, you need to think, what can I do now to water my grass and fertilize my grass so that it can grow to the best possibility it has right now with everything that's happening in my world. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And for all the parents that are listening, I guess I'm wondering what advice you'd have for them around their children coming through the ranks and following their own passion.
1: I think ultimately, you know, again, coming back to what I was sort of preaching before in, in understanding who's in your And and empowering your young person to explore who's in their inner circle is probably step one because it's possible to have multiple passions and it's possible to pursue multiple passions at the same time. In my team in 2014 at the Sochi Winter Olympics in the ski cross team, we had five athletes, including myself, and three of those athletes were studying double degrees at university and have since in their retirement, one's not using his degree and two are, and they are pursuing really meaningful careers to them and were able to also, you know, achieve what they wanted to as an athlete. So I think it's fine to have multiple passions, but if you don't plan, you plan for failure. So encouraging people to kind of look and see, okay, if there's a way that if my daughter wants to be in a philharmonic orchestra, you know, what are the ways that we can make sure that school and social aspects of their life and family life can all assist with that and not take away from each other and and all it takes is some planning you know and having the conversation and ultimately if your child isn't interested in having the conversation then they're not engaged and that's totally fine you know there's nothing wrong with that there's also nothing wrong with them saying I don't want to talk about it right now but in a year's time that coming up because Again, there's no rules about how old you have to be with most things. You know, if you're going to be a gymnast, maybe it's probably an early conversation. (laughs) Certainly in, in a lot of sports, there's no rules to say that, you know, that it's too late at 17 or 18 to really actively pursue something. If you have somebody who is super passionate about something and, you know, hopefully has a bit of talent, but most importantly is willing to work hard, hard work beats talent when talent won't work hard. And every aspiring person will tell you that they've achieved multiple things in their life because they made a plan
0: mm. and worked hard.
1: Yeah, and bought the bought the right attitude. Absolutely, like you know, you 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 show up open minded. You don't have to take everybody's advice on board, but you might leave with something that will surprise you and will make all the difference. Instead of coming into something thinking that you're an expert all
0: the time. Mm. Mm. And Sammy, it has been. So magnificent having you on here. I love to finish the podcast with a question, you know, who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? The person that makes me truly belly laugh is
1: my very great friend, close friend, and until recently, my on snow ski coach Sean Fleming, and I have the pleasure of working with him now every day as well. So he thought he was getting rid of me when I retired, but <laughs> ha-ha, we still no. work together. You know, he we've often spoken within my family. He's part of the, the family for us, and um he knows me probably more in a in a more intimate way personally than my husband knows me because of the. Complex times that we've had to spend together. We've been forced to live together on the road for you know six to nine months of the year when my husband's back at home, or and it's just Sean and I. And we wound up in situations where you know we're driving the wrong wrong way up a one way street, or we don't know how to speak the language, and we're at a toll booth or at a at a passport booth. And we've had all of these adventures, and he is somebody that knows how to get me going and I can't stop laughing when I'm with him and it's such a joy I feel really blessed to have to have been brave enough to start this journey of ski cross with him 15 years ago and to then see out my career with him and you know still call him a friend he he really is truly one of a kind and you know a fantastic person that I'm so fortunate that I've had the pleasure to 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 work with and and live with
0: Mm, and next for you is obvious three weeks and there's going to be a little rug rat on the ground yeah pretty crazy very big life change yeah Yeah. So thank you so much for finding the time today. You know, you've got a lot going on as we spoke about before this podcast, so much going on right now, and you still carve out this time to have this conversation for other people to hear and hopefully take something away. Like you said, it might not be to do with stroke. It might be to do with mindset. It might, you know, but just getting one little gold nugget. If you can get one little gold nugget from this conversation to add into your life toolbox for a time that you need it, then our job is done. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, you can never have too many tricks up your sleeve, but you'll notice the day that you don't have one, right? Mm, mm, definitely. One question I wanted to ask was what did it feel like to be on the start line at the Olympics post-stroke? But we ran out of time. That hour felt like 10 minutes. My takeaways from listening to Sammy are firstly, I'm definitely going to get my three girls to listen to this episode. I love the way that she talks about how she gets back up when she's been knocked down. How important it is to follow your path and to take stock of who you need in your corner at different points in your life. She talks about creating options and making the most out of any situation. This is something that I observe often in people when I talk to them about resilience. Sometimes it comes down to those couple of things. How do I create more options or pivot? And how do I make the most out of the situation that's in front of me, even if it's hard? It's such a privilege to have Sammy on today and I wish her the best of luck as she goes forwards into her next chapter of motherhood. I'm sure this won't be the last time you hear from her. And if you want to join us on the 2nd of April for the Disc Profiling Workshop or you want me to come out and run a personalised session for your team, reach out today. Otherwise, I will see you all next week.